You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians, it's kind of in the middle of your New Testament. Just look for 1 and 2 Thessalonians, find 1 Thessalonians, and then chapter 5. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to begin by reading our text, which comes from uh, verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter and the end of the book. So let's begin by reading that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idols, or the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that is living and active. Lord, your word through which you speak to us. Now, Lord, may we hear what you have to say to us today through this passage. May we hear it. May we understand it. Lord, may we apply it to our lives. And may we, as a result, be changed and transformed by you as we read your word, as your spirit works in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would do your work in us. And Lord, may we receive it. May you uh, transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we're studying through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, the first and second letters to the Thessalonians, our series has been called Upside Down. And so today we're finishing 1 Thessalonians. Next week we're going to begin right on the next page in 2 Thessalonians. But our series has been called Upside Down because when Christianity came to the city of Thessalonica, which is located in Greece. We read in the book of Acts about the time when missionaries came and they brought Christianity to the city. And what the people of that city, Thessalonica, said, they accused the Christians. They said, these people are turning the world upside down. They're turning the world upside down with their message, with their way of life. And they said, these people have come now to our town. They're going to turn our town upside down too. And they were absolutely right. They were absolutely right. See, that is exactly what Christianity did as it spread throughout the world. The good news of Jesus as it came into people's lives, as it came into communities, it absolutely turned those communities upside down one life at a time. And obviously the most amazing and wonderful ways because that is what the gospel always does when you put your faith in Jesus when you hand your life over to God when you give control over to him that's what happens he turns your life upside down in all the best and most wonderful ways you can imagine and so here in our study of these letters what we've been focusing on are the things that Christians believe that are upside down from the way that the world generally tends to think and function 
the things that are unique and different about Christians, the way that we live, the ways that we believe that are different from the way that the average person tends to think and operate. And recently, in our past few studies, we've been talking a lot about the unique way that Christians view death. And not just death, but also judgment, right? Like judgment day and the reckoning of God and all these things. And that's what we've been talking about in chapters four and the beginning of chapter five. And what we've seen is that the unique view that Christians have on death and judgment is this. We don't fear it. Rather, we anticipate it. We look forward to it. We embrace it. We can't wait for it. See, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul said this. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, if I die, guess what? I win, right? Like I win. Why? Because Jesus took the judgment that I deserve for the wrong things that I've done. And because of him, I can have the hope of eternal life after this life is over. The hope of heaven where there will be no more tears and no more pain, no more suffering, no more loss. Every tear will be wiped away. But now here at the last part of this letter, Paul shifts, right? He shifts in what he's talking about. He shifts from talking about the end of our lives and what happens after we die and heaven and eternity and the return of Jesus. And now what Paul's gonna talk about in this last section, you could call it this, until that day comes. In other words, what are we to be doing until that day comes? See, for each and every one of us, for each of you, there will come a day when your life here on earth will end. As we've seen here in 1 Thessalonians, either Jesus will return or you will die. But no matter what, there will come a day when your life will end, this earthly life. And the question is this, what are you to be doing until that day comes? As Christians, we look forward to heaven. We look forward to the return of Jesus. Paul the Apostle, he went this far to say this. He said, my desire is to depart from this world. He says, I want, my desire is to depart from this world and be with Christ because that is far better, he said. But here's my question for you. If heaven is so much better, like is that all the Christian life is? Is the, is the whole point of the Christian life, right, to just kind of get saved and get your ticket to heaven, and then for the rest of your life, you're just kind of biding your time and, and waiting, hoping for death to come and take you out of this cruel world, or for Jesus to return, whichever comes first? See, if that were the case, if, if Christianity is really just about believing in Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die, and that's it, well then, let me ask you this, why not just help speed up the process. I mean, if that's all that this life is about, is just like waiting to get the heck out of here, well, then why not speed it up? Maybe you could take up smoking or you could stop wearing your seatbelt or you could give up wearing sunscreen or you could stand in front of your microwave while your food cooks, right? Like uh, there are plenty of things you could do. You could sell both of your kidneys on the internet, right? I mean, why waste your time exercising? If, if this life is just about getting out of here and going to heaven, then... You know, you should be doing everything you possibly can to get diabetes and have a heart attack so you can shorten your lifespan and just leave this cruel world ASAP and go to heaven and be with Jesus. In fact, I mean, let's take that to one step further. Now, it might be ridiculous, but hear me out. If the whole point of this life is just to get your ticket to heaven and then get out of here, well, then why not go all the way and speed up the process, right? Not just end your life right now so you can go to heaven and be with Jesus. Now, if you think that sounds ridiculous, just know this, 
that is something that actually did happen in Christian history. There were movements of people, particularly between the years of 200 and 400 AD, that actually did this, who believed that the most spiritual thing you could do, the ultimate expression of faith, the ultimate expression of love for God and desire to go to heaven was actually to kill yourself. And, and this is something that happened. There was a movement called the Donatist movement in North Africa. And it got so bad, right? These people thought, hey, if you're really hardcore, if you're really on fire for Jesus, then the ultimate act of faith, the ultimate expression of love for God and desire to go to heaven is to kill yourself and so you can go to heaven now. It got to be such a big problem with Christians actually doing this that Augustine, the early church father, had to write an official statement and say why it was not okay to do that. See, the Christian life is about more than just getting saved and then waiting to uh, die so you can go to heaven. You know, one day, the fact is your life will be over. But until that day comes, there's a whole period of time which is significant. It's called your life. And how you live it matters. It matters a lot to God. And it matters. It should matter to you. See, your life, the Bible would say, your life has a purpose God has a calling and a mission for you to pursue and to fulfill. And as Christians, right, the Bible doesn't just give us a unique perspective on death and judgment. The Bible also gives us a unique perspective on life and the meaning of life and the purpose of life. See, many religions, for example, like uh, Eastern religions, or you could say Islam is another one that falls in this category. They basically believe this, that this world is a bad place and the purpose of life is to do everything you can, right? You've got a window of time, basically, in which you, can, you need to do everything you can in order to escape this world and go somewhere better, whether that's nirvana or paradise, right? In other words, the purpose of your life is to do everything you can in order to get out of here and go somewhere better. For the Romans and the Greeks, on the other hand, their view of life was a little bit different. Their view was that the purpose of life is enjoyment. That's the purpose of life. See, the Romans and Greeks were not so concerned about what happens to you after you die. For them, the purpose, the goal of life was to enjoy the good things that this life has to offer, whether that's physical pleasure or intellectual stimulation or building your character through hardship and, and trials. See, they believed that the purpose of life was personal fulfillment and enjoyment. Now, of course, the only problem with that is, what if your life is not enjoyable? What if your life is not enjoyable and the whole purpose of life is to enjoy your life? Well, here's what they did. And I don't want to make this all about suicide, but uh, Greeks and Romans, it was very common for uh, Greeks and Romans to commit suicide. And why? Because they believed that the purpose of life was enjoyment and fulfillment. And therefore, if you're not enjoying your life, then there's no point in going on living. And in fact, did you know that 40% of the city of Rome was made up with slaves who, guess what, weren't really enjoying their lives. And so they had to make a law in Rome that forbid slaves from ending their lives because it was such a big problem. But see, here comes Christianity, and it has a completely different view of life, a completely different view of life. According to the Bible, the purpose of your life is not to 
escape this world, nor is it for you to just live for your own personal fulfillment and enjoyment. And it is certainly not for you to earn your salvation, right? Because the message of the gospel is that salvation is a gift that God gives. It's not something that can be earned or deserved. It's something that we receive by faith. And so the question is, what is therefore the purpose of our lives? According to Christianity, the purpose of your life is something bigger than you yourself. It's something bigger than you. It's something bigger than just your personal fulfillment. The purpose of your life is to know God and to carry out his mission in the world. That mission of bringing truth and love and justice and hope and redemption to a fallen and broken world. Did you know that there are certain things that you can only do in this life? There are certain things which you will not be able to do in heaven. That's what makes this life so special to us as Christians. For example, only in this life can you help relieve suffering. Only in this life can you help relieve suffering. And then only in this life can you share the good news of the gospel and help someone to trust in Jesus and become a child of God. Now, I was talking with Pastor Mike this week, and he was telling me about a phrase that he heard somebody say recently, and we were talking about how good this phrase was. And here's what the phrase was. He said, when we come to church, we come in to praise, and we go out to worship. Think about that. We come in to praise, and we go out to worship. The idea there is that as Christians, we believe that we worship God by the way that we live our lives. In other words, our lives matter. They matter, and we worship God by the way that we live our lives. And so in 1 Thessalonians, here at the end, Paul gives us our marching orders for what we are to be about, what we're to be thinking about and doing until that day comes when God takes us home. And there are three big things that we see here. You can break it into three big ideas, and here's what they are. Number one, get competitive. Get competitive. I'll explain. Number two, keep the fire burning. And number three, never lose sight of the gospel. So let's talk about those. In the first couple of verses, verses 12 through 15, he talks about getting competitive. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says something really interesting. He says, love each other with brotherly affection. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the language of competition, right? Outdoing each other one-upping each other. He's encouraging them. Act like you're in a competition with each other for who can show the other one more honor, right? That's the competition going back and forth, right? Imagine if your relationships functioned this way. Imagine a marriage that functioned like that, right? The husband is honoring the wife and the wife is like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to outdo you and I'm going to honor you even more. And the husband's like, no, you're not. I'm going to honor you even more than you honored me. And they just keep going back and Forth, right in this upward spiral of honoring and respecting each other you know what if your work relationships were like that what if your family functioned that way right rather than tearing each other down rather than getting uh you know what if you got competitive about honoring one another speaking well of each other and one-upping each other in that showing respect see rather than being critical or snarky or judgmental what if we acted like we're in a competition to constantly outdo one another in showing honor I'll tell you what, if we did that, a church would be an irresistible place. 
It would be so attractive. You know, think about what kind of environment that would be for your kids to grow up in. What a safe place that would be for hurting people to come into. They would know that they would never have to worry about people judging them or talking bad about them. They would be able to come in and be built up and honored and loved and encouraged. See, Paul gives us some instruction also in these following verses as to what that looks like. Like, how should we do that? How should we honor one another? And I'm gonna summarize it like this, right, in these verses. He says, honor up, honor down, honor all around. You guys can do the hand motions, right? Honor up, honor down, honor all around, right? So let's start. Honor up, verses 12 and 13. He says this, we ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. See, as Christians, God wants us to honor our leaders, honor those who he has put over us, the leaders. Um, and, and so why are we to honor them and esteem them highly? He says in verse 13, not because they're better, but here's why. Because verse 13, because of the work that they do. In other words, because of the work they do and how significant it is for you. In verse 12, he refers to the leaders in their fellowship. He refers to them as those who labor among you. In other words, they're, they're identified not by their uh, title, they're identified by their actions. They're identified by the fact that they labor and they work on behalf of people. And in other words, here's the, here's the principle. True leadership is not about having a title or a position. True leadership is about serving people. We see that with Jesus. He modeled that. He taught that to his disciples. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that they should give honor to those in the church who labor in preaching and teaching. See, all, in all of life, we want to give honor where honor is due. We want to honor those who are over us, whether they're civic authorities or police officers, whether they're crossing guards or teachers. We want to honor parents. We want to honor those who are above you in the org chart at work. See, honor elevates and dishonor tears down. It pulls down. So honor elevates and dishonor pulls down. And in the church, we believe in honoring those who God has put in leadership over us, whether that's a ministry leader that you serve under or whether it's a leader of a community group that you belong to. And maybe you say, well, you know, I don't think that person deserves honor. Like, I don't think they, they're worthy of my honor. Well, I just want to remind you, nowhere in the Bible are you instructed to tear people down in order to cut them down to size. Like nowhere are you going to find that. But we do have this, elevate people, right? Honor people, show them honor because of what they do. It never tells us to tear people down. And here's what I believe is true. I believe that how you respond to leadership says more about you than it does about the leader. I'm going to say that again, really important. How you respond to leadership says more about you than it does about the leader that you're serving under or that you're, you're under. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 12. He says, those who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. So he identifies the leaders in the church in two ways. Number one, they're those who labor and work on your behalf. And number two, they're those who admonish you. Now, what does admonishing mean? Admonishing means to correct someone gently, gentle correction. See, part of the role of leaders in the church is to gently correct you when needed. And one of the ways that you can honor those who God has put over you, it's not only by acknowledging their work and receiving it, but here's another way, by allowing them and receiving those gentle corrections, those admonitions when they come. See, God uses leaders in our lives to help us get to the places that we can't get 
on our own. Even leaders who are subpar leaders, right? Like God uses leadership in our lives to help us get to the place that we can't get on our own. And I recently heard this story about Troy Aikman. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I'm talking about this Sunday. So let me tell you the story. Troy Aikman, right? He's a former NFL quarterback. Uh, Troy Aikman, right? One of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. Just a few stats. He was the number one overall draft pick in the NFL draft when he came out of college. Number one overall draft pick. He played 12 years in the NFL for the Cowboys. He was a six-time Pro Bowler. He has three Super Bowl rings. He was even the Super Bowl MVP. He was elected to the NFL Hall of Fame and the College Football Hall of Fame. He's one of the best players to ever play the game. Now, here's what Troy Aikman said. He said, I owe most of my success to my willingness to listen to my coaches. Let me just say that again. He said, I owe most of my success not to my talent, He said this, to my willingness to listen to my coaches. And here's what he said. I found this fascinating. He said, in my entire career, in both college and the NFL, I never threw a single pass, not a single pass that wasn't critiqued afterwards. It wasn't critiqued. In other words, he plays this entire game. He wins the game. He wins the Super Bowl. And then they go in the room, right, on Monday morning, and they watch the tape, and he's got some coach, right, who's probably, like, overweight and out of shape. And he's like, well, you shouldn't have done that. You should have taken three steps instead of five, right? And he's, like, critiquing his pass. And he's like, well, you got lucky on that one. Every single pass he ever threw got critiqued afterwards. Here's a guy who's one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever lived, and he never threw a pass that wasn't critiqued. Every time he threw the ball... They would tell him what he needed to do better. Now think about that. Were those coaches better football players than Troy Aikman? No, not even close, right? Some of those guys probably couldn't even throw a football to hit a barn, right? Now, now why were they coaching him? Why? Because they were the coach. And Troy Aikman says that a lot of his success, most of his success, wasn't due to raw talent. It was due to his willingness to listen to his coaches and receive and implement the corrections that they told him to make. Talk about humility, right? Talk about honoring up. Talk about not being too proud to receive correction. You see, to have a teachable spirit will take you farther than raw talent ever will. So may we be those who have that kind of teachable spirit. May we be those who honor up, who esteem highly those who labor for our good, who God has put above us and honor them and esteem them because of their work on our behalf. But we don't just honor up. We also honor down and we honor all around, right? So let's talk about that. He says in verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. In other words, you can't paint with a broad brush when it comes to people. There are different people who need to be ministered in different ways. And he lists three groups of people. But I want you to notice this. Who's he talking to here? Is he talking to the leaders? No, he's talking to everybody in the church. And what he's saying is, you guys, this is you. It's not, you know, there are leaders, but it's you also have a responsibility to minister to other people in the church. We have a responsibility towards one another in the congregation. And so what are we called to do? Well, first he tells us, admonish the idol. The word idol in Greek refers to somebody who didn't show up for work. Right, Somebody who's like, you look in their office and they're not there. It's a no call, no show. That's what this word means. Admonish these people who are not showing up. This is the person who has opportunities to serve the Lord with their time, their talents, or their resources. There's a community group that they could join. There's a way that they could get involved, but they're idle. They're stagnant. They're not doing anything. They're not showing up. 
And we are to show brotherly love and honor by doing what? Admonishing these people, gently correcting them and calling them out of their complacency, calling them out to get engaged and take that next step with the Lord. Next, Paul says, he talks about the faint-hearted, right? So a faint-hearted in Greek, this word literally means a person with a small soul, a person with a small soul. And what it refers to is somebody who has gone through some sort of hardship or difficulty in their life, and their soul has shrunk, if you will, right? Their courage is small. Their strength is small. And we're called to come alongside the faint-hearted and hold them up to lend them our strength. You know, like you can imagine if you're, if you're on a trail hiking, you come across somebody who's fallen down and, and hurt themselves or you're, you know, you see an athlete who's injured. What do you do? You go over, you know, you put their arm around your neck and you help them stand up again, right? You, you let them use you for support so they can limp forward and take that next step. You help them recover until they get their strength back. That's what he's talking about. Finally, Paul says, help the weak. Now, here's what's interesting. Help the weak. He's not talking about those who are weak physically. He's talking about people who are weak spiritually and morally, morally weak. That's interesting. So this is the person, for example, who has put their faith in Jesus, but they're still struggling with a, an addiction maybe or a behavior or some sort of sin that they keep falling back into. See, this is the person who believes but they're weak morally. They're constantly relapsing into old behaviors that are destructive or bad for them. What do we do with those kinds of people? Do we kick them out of the church, right? Uh, do, do we treat them like dirt and look down our noses at them because they're moral failures? No, we come alongside them. We seek to help them. That's what he says here, help the weak. We want to help them stand up. We want to help them get free from those things that are hurting them and slowing them down. The church should be a hospital for sinners, not a club for the self-righteous. See, our desire is to see people healed and restored by Jesus. And whoever we're dealing with, he says there at the end of verse 14, we show them honor by being patient with them. We show each other grace, right? We forgive each other's mistakes. We spur each other on to do better and give our best, but we're not harsh with each other. We're not impatient with each other. We show each other patience and we show each other grace. And finally, right, honor all around. Verse 15, make sure no one repays evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, when you seek vengeance, when you seek revenge, who benefits from that? You're seeking to do something for yourself. You're not thinking about anybody but yourself. What Paul is calling us is to a different way of thinking about our relationships. He's calling us to not ask the question, what can I get out of this? But to ask the question, what can I do to help and benefit this person? I learned an interesting thing this week about avocados and bananas. You guys know about avocados and bananas? Did you know that bananas secrete a chemical which causes avocados to mature and ripen, right? So if you got an unripe avocado, don't just put it in a bag by itself. Throw a banana in that bag, and it's going to help that avocado become mature and ripen. And I just want to ask you this. Are you a banana, right? Are you a banana to somebody else's avocado? What effect does it have to be put in a paper bag with you for somebody else? Does it cause them to mature in the Lord? Does it cause them to ripen? And does it cause them to move forward towards God and towards what God wants for their life? I got to tell you guys, come on, be a banana, right? Somebody else out there is an avocado, be that banana for them, okay? So that brings us to our second point. 
Keep the fire burning. That's what he says. Until that day comes, keep the fire burning. If you've ever had a campfire or you have like a fire pit at your house, you know that fires need two things in order to keep burning, right? What do they need? They need fuel and they need oxygen. Fuel and oxygen. In other words, they need to have something to burn and they need to be able to breathe. And so until that day comes when your life ends or Jesus comes back, Paul says, keep that fire of your relationship with God. Keep it burning bright. How do you do that? In this section, Paul tells us how to fuel the fire and how to keep those flames burning. And he also tells us how to not smother the fire and quench the flames. So first of all, verses 16 through 18, he talks about fuel for the fire. He mentions three things, which he says, you know, this, at the end of it, he says, these three things, this is the will of God for your life. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, start here. It's written down in black and white. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So let's look at those. Rejoice always. Now, I wonder how many of you, when you read those words, right? Second shortest verse in the Bible, by the way. You read those words and you say, rejoice always. Well, I mean, surely it can't mean always, right? Like, so like if I lose my job or I get in a car accident, I'm supposed to rejoice. Like if a doctor tells me that my child has cancer, I'm supposed to rejoice. Surely that can't mean what it means. Well, I did a little digging, right? Like I look into the Greek language and the word that Paul uses here for always, you know what it means? It means always, right? So he's saying that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what is going on, you have a reason to rejoice. And you know why? Because your reason, your source of your joy, your reason for rejoicing is outside of your circumstances. In other words, no matter what happens to you in your life, it doesn't affect that source, that wellspring of joy, There's an interesting verse in the Old Testament prophet book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, here's what he says. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, again, even though, three times he says that, even though, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Do you notice what he said there? Even though I will. Even though I will. Even though the fig tree has no blossoms. Even though there's no grapes on the vine. Even though the cattle barns are empty. In an agrarian society, understand that all of those things, that's your income. That's how you put food on the table for your family. What he's describing here is a complete economic crisis that you're experiencing. And he's saying, look, let's put it in our terms, right? He's saying, even though my business is failing, even though I got laid off, even though my car broke down and I don't know what I'm going to do to make ends meet, even though these things have happened, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Even though I will. I want you to say that to yourself. Write it down. Even though I will. Whatever that, whatever you fill in those spaces for you. How was Habakkuk able to rejoice even though his life was falling apart? Here's why. Because the source of his joy, his reason for rejoicing, was something which laid outside of his circumstances. His joy was based on this, that he had been loved and redeemed by God. There was nothing that could happen, either good or bad, which could change that right? Not good things, not bad things. It doesn't change it. It's static. It's separate. It's different. His reason for rejoicing was not in his circumstances, but in God. And you see, here's the thing that I really believe. I believe that theology is fuel for worship. 
Theology is fuel for worship. You know, some people are like, oh, I'm not into theology. I'm like, well, you should be because you know what? When you know about God, when you know about what he's done, when you consider who he is in his providence, in his love, in his saving grace, in his sustaining provision, you know what those thoughts, that meditation does? It causes you to worship. It's like throwing a log on the fire. It gives you something to consume, something to worship about, a reason to give thanks in all circumstances. Paul says in verse 17, pray without ceasing. You can have an ongoing conversation with God as you go throughout the day, right? Talking to him about the things that are going on in your life, in your mind, asking for wisdom and direction in the moment. You know, there's a place and a time for folding your hands and closing your eyes, but it's probably not when you're driving, right? But you can still pray when you're driving, right? You know what this tells us about prayer? It says, first of all, prayer doesn't need to be speaking out loud. You know how I know that? Because he says, do it constantly. And if you're talking constantly out loud, well, that's going to, you know, be hard on other people and and probably uh, on you too, right? Rather, you can be communing with God as you go about your day. You don't have to have a special posture. You can just be communing with God, keeping that ongoing dialogue and fellowship with God going all the time. And here's the other thing I think about that. You guys ever think about this? There are some things that you don't tend to do while you're praying, right? Like, let's say some sinful actions. Like, you're tempted to do things. Well, when you're praying, you usually don't do those things. Now, if you're praying constantly, then you're probably not going to be doing those things, right? So it's going to be for your strength as well. But not only do we need to put fuel on the fire, we also need to give the fire room to breathe. Room to breathe. Paul says in verse 19, don't quench the spirit. This analogy, this picture of fire, it comes from this verse, right? This whole thing I'm talking about with fire it comes from this verse. Here's why. Because that word quench means to put out a fire, like we would say smother a fire. See, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers to empower them to fulfill God's mission that he had given them, the Holy Spirit appeared on their heads as flames of fire. And what Paul is saying is don't quench that fire. Don't quench the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and through your life. And he goes on to give some examples of what he means by that. He says in verse 20, don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Well, first of all, what's a prophecy, right? Well, in the New Testament, a prophecy isn't giving a new revelation from God, something that nobody's ever known about God at all. No, in the New Testament, prophecy means speaking forth a word from God for a particular situation. See, in the New Testament, there's a gift of the Holy Spirit called a gift of prophecy. It's a spiritual gift, which it says is for the building up of the church and for the building up of believers. In 1 Corinthians verse Chapter 14, verse 3, the spiritual gift of prophecy is described like this. It says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, and for their consolation. Sounds like a pretty good thing, right? Like upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Now, you might ask the question, well, what if, you know, or maybe you've experienced it before. What if somebody takes advantage of this? And takes advantage of other people by, let's say, they claim that they have a message from God, but it really isn't from God. It's really just from them, and they're just saying that it's from God so they can manipulate people and make them do what they want to do and control them. Could that ever happen? Of course. Has that ever happened? Yes, absolutely. But Paul's telling us, look, he don't let some people's misuse of these spiritual gifts cause you to despise them. 
cause you to say, well, I'm just gonna not believe in those things or I don't want anything to do with that stuff. Why? Because if you do that, you'll be missing out on beautiful things that God wants to do. So what should we do instead? We should test all things and we should hold fast to that which is good. That's what he says, test all things. How do we test all things? Well, here's how. Whether it's a sermon, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's somebody claiming to have some kind of message from God, how do we test it? We test it by the standard of the word of God. See, God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. He doesn't you know, say one thing one day and a totally different thing the next day. He's a God of order and confusion. And when, when God speaks, right, it's for what? Consolation, upbuilding, encouragement. So we don't just accept everything at face value or, or without question as being from God just because somebody says it is. But what do we do? We test all things by the standard and we hold on to that which is good. The other thing we do in order to not smother the flames, to quench the flames of our relationship with God is this, verse 22, abstain from every kind of evil. Abstain from every kind of evil. And finally here in verse 23 through 28, he says, never lose sight of the gospel. Until Jesus comes, until that day comes, never lose sight of the gospel. Guys, you know the gospel, the core message of Christianity, it's not good advice about what you need to do for God. The gospel is the good news about what God has done for you in Jesus. The gospel isn't just like the ABCs of the Christian life, right? Like the beginning stuff, the kids stuff. No, the gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to the Z. You never outgrow the gospel. You never move on to the deeper stuff. There is truly no deeper stuff stuff than this message of who God is and what he has done for you and his amazing love that he has for you that he expressed in Jesus. See, it isn't that God saves you and then he gives you a bunch of rules to follow that you got to do or else, right, to the best of your own ability. No, check this out, what he's saying in this verse. He's saying this, the same grace that saves you is the grace that will sustain you and it will bring you all the way through until when? Until that day comes. Look at what he says in verse 23. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely, right? In other words, it's the work of God. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who does it? He says this, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You can be sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, until that day comes. So your salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the gospel. Don't get it backwards. Remember that whatever you do, it isn't to make God love you. It isn't to earn blessing. Rather, we do what we do because God has loved us and God has blessed us. It's our response. I heard one person put it this way. He said this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be loved but not known, that's comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved, that is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved, that is what it means to be loved by God. See, God knows you fully. He knows warts and all, and yet he loves you. He has chosen to place his love on you and to save you, and he will be faithful to complete that which he has begun in you until that day comes. 
He says in verse 26, he says, pray for us. Paul prayed for them throughout this letter. He mentions that and he just did it in the previous verse. And he says, you know what? But I understand this goes both ways. I want you to pray for me, you Thessalonians. He says in verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss or a hearty handshake or a hug or whatever's culturally acceptable in your context, right? A warm greeting. You know, it's funny when we lived in Hungary, everybody greets each other by kissing each other on the face. But if you hug somebody, that's considered like, whoa, you just stepped across the line. Like, hey, who do you think you are, right? Like, I only hug my, my mom and my husband, right? Like, you don't hug people. But here, here, like, if you go around kissing people, you're probably gonna get slapped. So probably don't do that. But whatever's culturally appropriate for a warm greeting, you know, Paul's saying, hey, tell, tell the brothers I say what's up and give them a hearty handshake and kiss them on the face. So verse 27, I, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. In other words, this letter was intended not for a private audience. It was intended for a public audience. It was meant to be a teaching tool that would be passed around and instruct people about doctrine and God's will. See, I believe that Paul knew, he sensed that this letter, which was, by the way, the first of its kind, this is the first of Paul's apostolic letters. He knew that as he was writing this, this was something different. There's something different going on, something special. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's for the instruction and edification of believers. And he says in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul began this letter speaking about the grace of God. Now he finishes it by talking about the grace of God. He wants us from the day one until, the day, until that day comes to never lose sight of the gospel. And I'll just finish by saying this. Guys, we are all on the clock. None of us knows how much time we've got left here on earth. All of us will either die or Jesus will come back, but our life here on earth will end. If your faith is in Jesus, then that is not something for you to fear. That is something for you to celebrate and look forward to because it means heaven and being with God face to face. But until that day comes, God has a purpose for your life. He has a mission for you to carry out and fulfill. So by the power of the Holy Spirit within you, get competitive, right? Outdo one another in showing honor. Keep that fire burning and never lose sight of the gospel. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this encouraging word here in your scriptures. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. But thank you that you are a God who loves us, who corrects us, who leads us, who teaches us. Lord, may, may we be those who are receptive to your word, Lord, to, to your leading in our lives. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what, I don't even have that hope of heaven. Lord, I pray that before they leave here today, they would receive what you've done for them by faith, that they would put their faith in you, Jesus, and what you did for them on the cross. They would understand that their right standing with you isn't earned by anything they do, but by what you did for them because you love them. Lord, may we never lose sight of the gospel. May we keep that fire burning. And we pray that you would do these things in us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.